Hello and welcome to 15-Minute Medicine, where we try to make medicine as simple as possible, but not simpler than that. I'm Dr. Foso Hombo, one of your co-hosts, and I'm joined by my other co-host, Dr. Farai Chigumadzi. Today, we'll be talking about something neurosurgically related, and to be specific, we'll be talking about brain abscesses. By the way, before we start, just so that you know, Foso is a budding neurosurgeon, so she's going to be very excited for this episode. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully, I'll be tackling brain abscesses in the near future and uh, saving a lot of lives in the process. Definitely. You definitely will before so. So this case is a bit different from what we normally do, but it was brought to you by someone I met last year, a pediatric neurosurgeon, Dr. Ronnie Particulin. So thank you, Ronnie, for sharing this case with us. And for everyone who's listening, here's Ronnie. Hello, I'm Ron. I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon from Manila. Uh, so a few months ago, I got called for a referral. There's this maybe seven-year-old boy who came in with a shut right eye. So his right eyelid was not opening. Uh, he was very irritable. Yeah, and having low-grade fevers in the last two, three weeks. So uh, at the same time, he was having some headaches and two or three episodes of vomiting. Uh, significant history, I mean, maybe about a year ago, apparently there was some eye trauma. Uh, there was some eye trauma that was, uh, apparently was a wound near the eye or near the eyelid, I wasn't sure. Uh, nothing was really done. But now when she when he came in at the hospital and I examined him, he had a shut right eye. Other pertinent findings, he was very irritable. He didn't have a fever during the time I came to see him. But uh, his right eye was not moving. So his right eye, eye it was a frozen eyeball. Uh, and when you shone a light, pen light on that right eye, it was also non-reactive. Uh, the left eye, however, was completely normal. So the left eye had full movements, eye movements, and the pupil was reactive on the left eye. When you see this, so when you have a shut right eye with an unreactive pupil and frozen eyeball, so you immediately think of something. This is probably a pathology that involves multiple cranial nerves. So you try to think uh, which cranial nerve will elevate the eyelid. So the, and you try to think which cranial nerves will move the eyeball. Which cranial nerve is responsible for constricting the pupil. So it's cranial nerves 3, 4, and 6. And you all find them in the convergence sinus. So what we so initially when I saw this patient, I initially thought, well, this is a patient with convergence sinus syndrome. And when we did a CT scan... True enough, he had a rim-enhancing lesion, maybe about 5 centimeters maximum diameter, arising from the cavernous sinus, and it seemed to me like a, an abscess. So it was a brain abscess in, 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 in the middle temporal fossa arising from the cavernous sinus. So immediately I knew, so when you have a patient with brain abscess, the, 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 the goal of treatment is to relieve the mass effect and to get specimen for culture so that you could give proper antibiotics. So I brought him to the operating room, uh, did a craniotomy, uh, excised the abscess wall and the lateral wall of the abscess, drained all the purulent material. So it was very purulent, it was foul smelling. I had to leave behind the medial wall of the abscess because it was very adherent to the covering sinus and I didn't want to run into the complications of bleeding. So... 
there weren't any cultures. So uh, when we said cultures, uh, we only saw uh, segmenters, but we didn't get any growth. So we ended up giving eight weeks of empirical antibiotics. So we had to cover for gram-positive, gram-negative, and anaerobes. It's because these are usually polymicrobial. So uh, in, that, oh, in that span of eight weeks, uh, I had to do two CD scans just to monitor that there's no recurrence of the abscess. And gradually, his neurologic findings improved. So initially, it was maybe by three or four weeks, he was already starting to open his right eyelid. And he began to have eye movements as well. At the end of eight weeks, the only, uh, the only deficit he had was a slightly large right pupil. Uh, but it was already constricting, and I expect this to recover maybe in six to eight months. So after that, after completing eight weeks of antibiotics, he was sent home. For those of you who don't know where Manila is, it's in the Philippines. For those of you who are quickly checking Google where Manila is. So we're going to delve into a bit of epidemiology for this case very briefly. So brain abscesses are more common in males than females. It's also more common in the first four decades of life. With the widespread use and distribution of vaccines, particularly Haemophilus influenzae, this has brought down the incidence of brain abscesses. However, just as this vaccine has brought down the incidence, we have the AIDS pandemic to thank for increasing the incidence of brain abscesses. Thanks for that, Farah. And to those who are, are not still not convinced about the importance of vaccines, Here's another reason why they're very important and very beneficial to society as a whole. Now, moving on to the pathophysiology or of brain abscesses, one could break it down or the etiology into three ways of looking at it. Spread via contiguous from a separative focus nearby, spread via hematogenous, or spread via trauma or surgical related route. So with regards to contiguous spread, this is usually from a separative focus near the intracranial cavity, such as with that which you find in a sinusitis, a mastoiditis, or a dental infection. And obviously this can lead to very severe fulminant infection, eroding the bone with osteomyelitis and entering the intracranial cavity and forming an abscess. With regards to hematogenous spread, this is usually in patients with congenital heart defects who may develop infective endocarditis or even patients who just develop in infective endocarditis secondary to either intravenous drug use or they have fulminant uh, staph aureus sepsis. This may lead to hematogenous spread of septic emboli towards the brain. This can also occur in patients with pulmonary arteriovenous malformations as well as chronic separative lung disease, such as lung empyemas or lung abscesses. Finally, trauma or surgically related spread. This is secondary to either a traumatic cause, so someone suffers a major traumatic injury that causes an open route for the infective bacteria to spread to the brain. So this could be in an open skull fracture, or if someone undergoes a neurosurgical procedure, and this is another route where bacteria can spread to the brain or an infective organism. It's not always bacteria. And also in some cases, it can be secondary to trauma to the face, like in the case of our patient. 
No, the risk factors to look out for for brain abscesses are patients with underlying disease such as HIV and AIDS or patients on immunosuppressive drugs. I'm just going to move on to the signs and symptoms. The typical picture that you'll get for these patients is someone who's complaining of headache, fever, and altered loss of consciousness. The headache especially is very, very common. Then you can get neurological signs, and these depend on the site. So if the abscess is located in the frontal or temporal lobes, you can get behavioral changes. The abscess is located in the cerebellum or the brainstem. You can get cranial nerve palsies or gait disorders. You can also get seizures, which happen in 25% of patients, and you can get papilla edema. So with the neurological signs, these can often be very subtle and can take days to weeks to present. However, they become more evident as the abscess grows larger and the surrounding edema increases. Now moving on to the special investigations one would do. So obviously one may, with those symptoms and signs that Farai just mentioned, one may obviously have a strong suspicion that something is going on in the brain. While you're waiting for a patient to get some further imaging, one could pull some bloods, said one could do a FBC, a CRP, an ESR, as well as um, a blood culture. So looking for something, some source of infection. And typically, a white cell count would be raised, your ESR and CRP would also be raised, and your blood culture may yield a source of infection that may be suggestive of specific organism. Then, as alluded to earlier, the ideal would also be to get some imaging of the brain. In an ideal setting, one would get an MRI because this has a good, good characterization of the soft tissues and can even help further differentiate between a brain abscess as well as other causes of the typical finding of a ring-enhancing lesion, which one could also find on CT. On a CT scan, one would find a typical ring-enhancing lesion on contrast CT which has a broad differential that Farai is going to go into. Is there any use of doing an LP for so? A lumbar puncture could be of, of great use, but if a patient um, has signs and symptoms of a raised intracranial pressure, one would obviously cause a coning of the patient if that were the case, if they were to do an LP before getting imaging. So it wouldn't be a go-to investigation. And typically after one sees a lesion on imaging, one would probably first try and characterize what that lesion is before going for an LP. But an LP could be useful in the sense to give you, allude to a definite diagnosis, but can also exclude meningitis, which one could also suspect with the signs and symptoms that you have presented. As you've also said, now I'm going to dive into the differential diagnosis of ring-enhancing lesions on CT scans specifically. So the mnemonic that we often taught is magical doctor, magical DR. So the M is for metastases. A, in this case, is an abscess. G is glioblastoma. I can be an infarct, specifically subacute, or it can be for inflammation. Causes of inflammation would be your tuberculomas or a neurocystosarcosis. C is for contusions. A is for AIDS-related diseases. L is for lymphoma, D is for demyelinating diseases, and R is for radiation necrosis or resolving hematoma. So whenever you think about ring-enhancing lesions, always remember the mnemonic magical doctor. In general, 
in general, the differential diagnosis, as we've already pointed out, would be your CNS lymphoma, other brain tumors, strokes, bacterial meningitis, which you say we have to exclude epidural abscesses, subdural hematoma, subdural empyema, as well as a stroke. Also just wanted to add on, for I mentioned uh, lymphoma on the differential of magical doctor. The particular uh, typical appearance of ring enhancing lesion on CT that is caused by lymphoma is that usually in patients who are immunocompromised, just to add on there. Now moving on to the definite treatment of brain abscesses. As mentioned earlier, this is a neurosurgical topic. So more, more often than not, surgery of some sort or some procedure will be involved. Typically, it could either be through open craniotomy where it's quite invasive and one tries to evacuate the abscess or abscesses, or one could use a finer approach that has been becoming more and more popular, a less invasive approach, which uses either imaging-guided stereotactic techniques to fine-tune the approach and one would use a needle aspiration to get out the, the fluid from the abscess. In either case, there'll either be fluid or tissue that can be sent off for culture and sensitivities. The other arm of treatment, which is medical, patients will receive empiric antibiotics, IV, for at least six to eight weeks. Initially, the antibiotics are empiric and broad spectrum, covering gram-positive, gram-negatives, as well as anaerobes. And in some cases, if you have a patient with HIV, you'd also maybe consider TB treatment as well as antiprotozoals. This is due to the fact that in such patients, they may either have TB, as mentioned, or toxoplasmosis. Just to, since I'm already on that stream, I can mention a few organisms that are associated with certain conditions. With regards to trauma surgical related, one would typically find skin commensal organisms such as Staph aureus and Staph epidermidis. And with regards to spread from contiguous sources, one can typically find either polymicrobial growth as well as Staphylococci and Streptococci. Obviously, once cultures and sensitivities come back, one would target the antibiotics accordingly to the sensitivity specificity of the organism, then we're not just blasting patients with all sorts of antibiotics. Because always remember that as, as great as antibiotics are, they also still have their side effects. And that in essence sums up the treatment of cerebral abscesses. One may also do follow-up CTs during these six to eight weeks of antibiotics and then post-completion just to monitor the size as well as obviously clinical um, monitoring of the patient's improvement or lack thereof. Which brings us on to the last part of this discussion, and that is the prognosis. So the earlier the patient presents and gets a definitive diagnosis, then that improves the prognosis. So now we are quite fortunate that getting imaging such as CTs and MRIs are not, not impossible to do, so that has improved the prognosis. Also with the development of these newer fancy surgical techniques that Ifosa has alluded to, that's improved prognosis. Things that decrease prognosis are patients having a concomitant immunocompromised state, a delay or a delay in diagnosis or misdiagnosis, as well as inadequate treatment. So like Ifosa was speaking about 
he says with the treatment you want to give your antibiotics but if you're giving the wrong antibiotics or you're not giving it in an adequate enough method so for example if you're giving oral antibiotics instead of iv antibiotics that can decrease the prognosis then also if patients present with multiple abscesses or neurological impairment that leads to a poorer prognosis and that brings us to the end of our episode on brain abscesses obviously there's a lot more we could talk about but we have to stick to our promise of trying to keep things 15 minutes or making medicine as simple as possible, but not simpler than that. But thanks to our listeners for your attention. If you have any comments, any suggestions, anything you'd like to add, please feel free to contact us on our social media, on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages at 15 Minute Medicine. And let us continue to try making medicine as simple as possible. And not simpler than that.